Welcome to Orthopod, a podcast about the people of orthopedics and their stories. We understand that we all play many roles in our careers and lives, and it is these very stories that ultimately inform our successes and failures. I'm delighted now to introduce Dr. PJ Dever, a longtime friend and collaborator, but let me just give you a little bit of his credentials. I think they're worthy uh, for you to hear them in our membership here. He's the, currently the director of uh, the perioperative program at McMaster University. He's professor in university scholar in the Departments of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact uh, and Medicine uh, at McMaster University. I've known Dr. Devereaux, PJ now for probably 15, well, probably 20 years actually. Years, yeah. um, and we have recently collaborated on this trial that he's gonna to talk to you about. You just heard Dr. Borges speak about the methodology of that trial. But I'd like to ask you, PJ, first of all, welcome. Thank you, nice to be here. <laughs> and I'd like to um, ask you, when you, started chatting about this particular study. It wasn't, you know, seems like it's now, it's about almost a half a decade ago that we were yeah. talking about this. For you, what was the inspiration of the HIPAA-TAC trial? So I remember very vividly, um, I was on call for cardiology. I got a call on a Friday night. It was early July. It was all new residents. And I got a call from an anesthesiologist saying that there's this 73-year-old female who had presented earlier in the day with a hip fracture to the emergency room. Um, someone had measured her troponins, which is a marker of heart injury. Those were elevated. She had some ST changes, supportive that she yeah. had a heart attack. And um, the resident was also new and heard that hip fractures can bleed and her pressure was a little bit soft, gave a lot of fluid. The patient was in some heart failure and the anesthetist sort of said, you need to fix her heart before we can fix his hip. And certainly in our training in medicine and cardiology, you're sort of taught that you sort of medically optimize patients before surgery and then do surgery. And so I then uh, ended up managing this patient up in our cardiac care unit, spoke to uh, the interventional cardiologist who was on with me that weekend about the case. They said that, you know, we'll get her to the cath lab. Saturday, they were swamped, went to the cath lab. Sunday, saw um, a narrowing in a heart artery. And if we see narrowings in heart arteries as cardiologists, we yep. like to blow those up, yep. intervene on it. And when we intervene, we end up having to use antiplatelet drugs. Yep. Patient comes back and suddenly has a major bleed and dies and never makes it to the OR. Now, um, despite the best of intentions, um, I sort of in reflecting on this thought, clearly the pathway that I had selected for this patient was not the right pathway for her. And that's when I contacted you. And I remember we got a hold of Justin DeBeer and... Mitch Weimaker and a number of us had an initial conversation where I just sort of told you guys that my feeling was the teaching that we had in medicine of this medical optimization for people awaiting urgent emergent surgeries, maybe in fact it was the wrong approach. And I knew nothing at the time about the medical literature on accelerated surgery or the timing of surgery relative right. to hip fractures and outcomes. And you then appropriately educated me and said, hey, there's... There's literature on this. And at that time, this was probably 2010 or something like that in that ballpark where we had, with you and a bunch of others, put together that review. And, and at that time, it was just a bunch of non-randomized studies, 13,500, something like that, 13,000, 14,000 patients worth yeah. of which it was non-randomized data that when we looked at it, I think suggested, in fact, that at every cut point, and the cut points were anywhere between 12 hours to 48 hours, you know, you get them before or after that. Yeah. Right, if you recall, it was about twenty yeah. percent reduction in risk of mortality. 
And and I remember talking to you and thinking, well, I guess that's kind of what we have to live with. And I think your response was, why? <laughs> right? Well, yeah. Why don't we do a trial? Like, yeah. Because you know, no one ever thought you should be, could or should do a trial. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember being very struck because like, you know, the whole series of events you said, first off, you educate me, there's literature, and then yeah. we get the systematic review, and this yeah. looks encouraging. Right. And then a lot of people certainly were of the opinion, well, the answer is now pretty clear, just do accelerated surgery. And... Um, when we said no, we want to. We said to some people, well, we want to do a randomized trial, and people sort of said, well, it'll be unethical. You can't do it. Right. And this is what made us felt more compelled. We must do it. <laughs> and I think part of it was, you know, the realization that it, that people were just thinking about it wrong in the sense that we weren't going to randomize anyone to delayed surgery. Right. Surgery was already delayed in general. We could just randomize and try to create an accelerated pathway. And then I also remember. You and I had a conversation with Leslie Goche Yes. Because we were still the mindset of, okay, we're going to have to push people and get hospital administrative on side to get accelerated surgery. And she sort of, you know, humbled you and I because we were thinking about 24 hours. And she said, no, no, we should think about it like the acute angioplasty for heart attacks. And that's when we just sort of, it blew everything up. We said, okay, let's see if we could go for six hours. Well, that's exactly the point. Because when you actually brought up the concept of we're going to go to a group of uh, surgeons and anesthesiologists. And I want to, I want to really want to get your psychology on, you know, what it felt like trying to get all these different groups together, including the administrative group, the emergency department, everyone together, because that in itself would probably have ended trial aspirations for 99% of people trying to take on this trial. But it needed every single one of those groups, including the hospital. You know, I remember us chatting and having to quote buy hospital OR time for that accelerated care path. But all that stuff was part of this, this whole process. And when you started thinking about it, did you have a sense that it was going to become this complicated that quickly? Yeah. Um, I certainly thought that it was going to be challenging. And, and the reality is, I think all trials that we do, it's difficult because sure. there's just an endless amount of bureaucracy and right. hurdles in your way. That being said, this was the first trial that we did where you're trying to change systems. Usually we're looking right. at giving a drug or we're looking at right. the type of surgical approach, but this required a system change. And as you said, it really required us to back everything up from the point of view a patient arrives with an ambulance to the ER, getting you know the nurses who are the triage nurses on board to say, we want you to treat the potential fracture like it's a heart attack or stroke. We want this in right away. Getting the eMERGE docs on site to say, okay, getting radiology on site, x-ray has to happen right away. Getting then the orthopedic group to say, okay, we need to clearly say this is a hip fracture that's going to need surgery. Then also getting the buy-in of anesthesia, which is to say, if we're going to offer accelerated medical clearance in the accelerated care group, you got to support that they're going to go into the OR. Um, and then getting hospital administration to say, okay, we're going to have to bump into OR slots in order to get in here. And so certainly, you know, like, and I want to give tons of credit to Flavia yourself. And also, you know, that was in our local center. We first had to prove it in the pilot it was doable. We also had yeah. India involved with us. But that, that challenge we had happened in 69 centers around the world. And, um, you know, um, Flavia put a crazy amount of time into this because it takes endless time to keep reminding everyone in those steps right. while they're, they're key to it that if any one group doesn't do their job, the timelines blow up. Right. And it just took, you know, it definitely took a lot of massaging uh, to change systems. And, you know, I remember the biggest psychological challenge uh, for the surgical side was a twofold. One was, you know, getting patients to the OR in six hours is going to be very difficult. And the second one was going to be, what if this study actually shows we have to operate six hours? And there was this cruel thing about if we functionally change the system, it changes 
it completely changes the landscape of management of these fractures. You know, obviously for the betterment of patients, but there are many surgeons who have this belief that, you know, it's okay to wait 12 hours, 24 hours. And so operating at two in the morning where you wouldn't normally operate was a big consideration for many of these surgeons. So it was a, you could see the weight of this trial more than other trials that I've ever been involved in on the anticipation of the results. Yeah. And, and um, it's an excellent point. I think one of the key things that's very important to keep in mind with hip attack on that point, we made a strategic decision um, prior to starting to say we would focus on working hours because similar to the issue that existed in acute angioplasty for acute heart attacks, first people demonstrate in a setting where you have, you know, optimal normal conditions, right. normal working environment, normal number of personnel around, does something work? And then it's a separate question, does it work at two in the morning? And so specifically in hip attack, we made the strategic decision to say, this would be based upon working hours, which varied by site, but in general, it tended to be from six or seven in the morning until, you know, three to eight o'clock at night. Each center made the right selection for that. So we're, you know, the results we can only speak to within working hours. We're not saying if someone shows up at midnight, what is the right thing to do? I think that's its own question because sure. just the number of personnel around, people are likely tired. There's many other things yeah, that right, may right. influence outcomes. And I also remember halfway through it, probably a couple of years into it, when you'd have follow-up, you know, what what was this six hours going to be really hard to get to? There were sites that were well under six hours for the accelerated care. I mean, almost to the point where you thought like it's, it's you know, six hours could be an upper limit if people really pushed the concept of accelerated care. And I'm curious what your perception of that whole accelerated care site became over time as you saw centers really quite ex- easily getting yeah. patients in within six hours. In fact, sometimes two or three hours, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one other point too, to make clear is that our selection of six hours wasn't based upon, we think that six hours is magical in this in right. line and time where everything is going to be beneficial below that. Right. It was to select a time where it was feasible for people to reach to it. We were nowhere near it in general. Right. But it was credible. We knew from the pilot you could get there. It took a lot of effort to get all of those steps in place to facilitate it. But it was achievable. Because in other words, we said to everyone, you got to do it in an hour. Even though there's true, some places could do an hour for some of the patients, not all of them. Um, You'd you'd just discourage people and people just give up. Versus you put it in a reaching distance that requires real effort. But you also role model that, hey, this is achievable. And, you know, so just to make the point up front is that it's not that we thought six hours was magical. We knew it was feasible. We knew people would have to reach it. We knew that that would give us real separation from the standard care groups. We needed separation in time between the standard care group and what accelerated care group would get if there's going to be any hope of seeing a difference. Got it. And the one thing that, you know, as the trial went on, um, there became, I mean, there has been, right? And there continues to be a tremendous amount of anticipation um, of what, the results are going to show. And I think as much as there was reticence early on around, okay, you know, if this is positive, that's a big change. And some, you know, surgeons sometimes just aren't comfortable with change in, in that kind of broad way. Towards the end, I thought there were people really rooting for change because I think they had seen the value of what happens anecdotally, right? When you yeah. when you when you just get someone to the operating room quickly and manage whatever the problem it is. And I guess for them, I think the results are particularly poignant because they want to know that what they're doing makes sense and they want to be able to defend it. So anyways, I'm curious what you're... Yeah, well, I I agree. I think that I would guess that as the trial went on, the vast majority of people became believers um, in this. And also, too, it was even with us in our own group, 
if you come back to the case that drove this in the first place, it was seeing this patient with these elevated heart marker biomarkers, saying there's heart right. injury. We get down this path of medical management that sadly results in this patient's demise. But also in the trial, if you had elevated heart markers, you if you're in the accelerated care group, you went into surgery. And also we witnessed in patients we saw and we were actively managing that the be patients who had really high elevated heart markers, so troponins in the 2000 range, go into surgery, and right after surgery, within an hour or two, their troponins are down to two or 300. So there's also this observation that you're making that some people on a physiological level, not the outcome that is our destiny of what we want to show as change, right. but you're seeing what appear to be physiological responses. And a big part of what existed is that this issue of this medical optimization, which right. was suggesting the possibility that, in fact, some people that you think are more unstable may in fact be the ones that have the most to gain by actually having the accelerated surgery. Got it. Got it. Got it. So let me ask you this now. Let me take you, take me to the point now at which all the data is in your, you as the, one of the principals is about to be unblinded just before you were unblinded. Did you have a sense of what you were going to find or a hope? And then take me to what happened when you finally saw the results and what, and cause I think that's actually really informative. We often see the final paper. Yes. And we see the paper after a lot of thought has gone into it, yes. but we never understand the amount of effort it took to get from the data to the analysis to the story. And, yeah. you know, and I'm curious if you could walk, because I don't think most viewers get a chance to hear that story. Yeah, well, you know, certainly um, done enough trials now where recognize that <laughs> a lot of times you're in for surprises of what you're going to yeah. see. And it's, it really highlights why it is so crucial right. that we do big trials. Right. Um, because, you know... The reality is our ability to actually see real effects of major outcomes from observational, just managing patients. There's so much confounding that exists in just routine clinical practice. It's hopeless in trying to understand what's actually happening. And it's, you know, we've done enough trials where I've been surprised in both directions. Sometimes I thought this isn't going to work and it right. has worked. Right. Right. And other examples are that this is definitely working. And in fact, it's much more nuanced. Right. There's actually some serious harms going on where in fact, there's also some benefits with some serious harms. So I, but I was certainly in the category, I thought, okay, you know, I think this is going to work. Right. Um, so that was the anticipation. So then become unblinded. And so the main results, we had two primary endpoints, right. total mortality and major complications, heart attacks, right. pulmonary embolism, sepsis, major bleeding. And the overall data did not show a reduction in those outcomes. However, what the data did also show is that, first off, we were able to get a separation in time. So the accelerated surgery group, six hours, median time to get in the OR, standard care group is 24 hours. Right. So you had enough separation where if there is a difference, you'd hopefully catch something. Exactly. Okay. Um, but overall, you yeah. don't see on death or major events this outcome, okay. this effect. However, there was a clear signal of a reduction in delirium. Right. There was a signal of a reduction in stroke. However... And this is part of when you see data that, you know, is really important as trialists. You naturally want to believe you're doing good. Yeah, right. But you also have to be willing to, even when you see signals that are statistically significant, if there's reasons to be cautious about it, right. you need to be cautious. Right. So despite the fact that there is a statistically significant reduction in stroke, you know, when we all saw these data and we discussed it, we said we should be really cautious. There wasn't very many strokes. Right. In contrast, there was a lot of delirium. There was this clear reduction in delirium. There was this clear reduction in urinary tract infections. And also we saw that there was a reduction in moderate to severe pain, day four to seven. And those things also had supporting variables that went along with it because 
by having accelerated surgery, patients weight-bared, stood, and mobilized 21 to 26 hours faster, which credibly naturally led to them leaving the hospital a day earlier. Right. It also then resulted in patients having less exposure for things that predispose them to delirium, like narcotics for pain, like being lying in bed longer periods of time, like less urinary tract yeah. infections. And also the urinary tract infections, most people get catheters as soon as they present with the fracture and it doesn't come out till after surgery. And because you have this differential in time with surgery, it's yeah. also credible. It's an effect. And actually, if you didn't even think about mortality as an outcome, let's just say, yeah. that alone would be compelling for most trials. Like for you know, sure. Right? Would, those would be, that would be a compelling outcome to say that is a win in terms or a strong benefit in, in favor. But I understand that, you know, the primary outcome was set as a, you know, very, very, you know, powerful primary and, yeah. you, know, you know, very objective one in mortality. And I think also, too, what it also tell there's still more to that story, but right. what it also tells us, too, is that the reality is patients coming with hip fractures, we already know from our prior research, a certain amount of complications are going to happen just as a result of surgery. They're both right. going to get surgery. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's complications we were never going to be able to impact just right. because it's a result of the stress of actual surgery. Right. And they're older with a lot of comorbidity. So, you know, it also highlights the point that I do think there's an advantage some real advantages to accelerated surgery, but we're also going to have to tackle the management of patients after the surgery. Got it. And just getting the surgery time itself, although there's clear benefits, and we can talk about specifically yeah. what happens in one of the subgroups where yeah. I think is the really interesting yeah. part of the story, right. um, we're going to still have to tackle the other side of surgery. Totally. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be a panacea. Right. Do early surgery. As you're going any, home the next morning. Everything's, yeah. the world is great. It's not that. Right. Well, as with any trial. When you look back, PJ, at this journey of this trial, you know, both you and uh, Flavia have, you know, spent an enormous amount of time and we've certainly done everything we can to support you. But really, you know, this has been a major, major undertaking. When you look back at this and now you have the, you know, you've got the hindsight of looking at the results in, the, in their totality. What's your big takeaway from this? And I guess my follow-up would be is what's next? Right. I think there's three takeaway messages. The first is we clearly demonstrate that accelerated surgery is feasible and it's safe. Right. And the reality is patients want fast surgery. No right. one wants to for wait sure. around for right. a day. Yeah, yeah. You know. Secondly is that we demonstrated that there are benefits overall to the broad population with accelerated surgery. You're going to decrease delirium, urinary tract infections, moderate to severe pain. You're going to mobilize patients much quicker and they're going to go home quicker. Those are all things that exist for the broad population. The third thing is that in the subgroup of patients, which really was the patient who drove the trial, the patients who had elevated heart markers at the start when they presented to the emergency room with their hip fracture, right. those patients in a subgroup analysis, which was a post hoc analysis, demonstrated that they had a mortality advantage. And I really think what hip attack's greatest contribution will be is I think it will make it hopefully everyone step back and also challenge this concept beyond hip fractures, but for any acute mm. urgent emergent surgical condition right. that sometimes when you see medical conditions, especially things like stress of the heart, heart injuries happening, I think what it's really telling you is the patient is not tolerating the physiological stress of the underlying condition. Right. And the best way to treat it is to actually reverse the underlying physiological insult with the surgery. And so I think in this case, that is the group I think that really stands to benefit. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think based on the 
just under 3,000 patients in this particular trial and the fact that this was a, 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 wasn't an a priori analysis, but yeah. still a compelling subgroup. Yeah. Is this enough, do you think, right now for practice change? Or, or do you feel now at this point you need more work to be done to convince people or to convince yourselves, quite frankly, as a group yeah. that, 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 that's, that that is the real message in well, terms of management? Well, I think always as researchers, we have to be cautious right. that, um, number one, we need to see how the rest of the world responds to it. If you ask sure. me tomorrow, if my mom arrives at a hospital with a hip fracture, do I want her to have accelerated surgery? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do based on the results because yeah, sure. I believe that there's enough reasons of benefit and there's no downside right. that I think it's worthwhile. That being said, I still think that it behooves us to go on and do further research to really nail this point that actually drove the trial in the first place to make it clear, and I sort of kicked myself that we didn't make it an a priori subgroup analysis, but as, you know, partly was we were fixated thinking this is going to be a cure-all. Right. And then once you realize what's a cure-all, it brings you back to why did we start this in the first place? And then you explore this group and you think, okay, exactly the patient who we <laughs> thought about the in the first place yeah, 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 looks yeah. to be the one that benefited. But I think, you know, we need to do more research on it because once again, it, it likely will have implication even beyond hip fractures. Right. And, um, you know, Flavia also, um, you know, with another one of our colleagues, you know, in Hamilton is leading another trial, even looking at people of acute cholecystitis. Right. And, uh, you know, once again, should we accelerate that surgery? So I really think that the ultimate big contribution of hip attack is going to be the realization that a lot of times what has made people nervous about doing surgery is the exact reason why they actually have to accelerate the surgery. But I think for sure, like anything more research and just really nailing that question and making the evidence so overwhelming is the right thing to do. So another trial that focuses specifically on people presenting with elevated troponins in the emergency room with a hip fracture, I think is the right way to go. Got it. And if I can just, if I recall, the the reduction in risk of mortality at 90 days in those patients with elevated troponins was a pretty... It's pretty, 60%. Yeah, 60%. That's a massive... The, the, other, the other thing too yeah. that's really important to keep in mind with that it also identifies if you show up and your troponins are up, that's the group that's at really high risk to both die right. and to have other major complications. So, so like they're you're the also picking priority. out, right. yeah, like this is the group that is the most vulnerable. And it also reflects what happened with the patient we manage. Right, right. Or I manage. Right, no, I, no. I want to I bring you in on this <laughs> no, because no, I, I feel you. guilty about it. But, <laughs> no, uh, but it, it, you know, it, it just reflects that again, that I think they're the group that is the most a benefit. Right. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a rational... Um, biological hypothesis, it stemmed what we did in the trial, but also it was our observation during the trial. Seeing people go to the OR with right. really elevated troponins and then right after surgery, they're really low right. is a message that oh, clearly something. fixing the hip resolved whatever was driving the cardiac ischemia. And, you know, I think... I think that it's a compelling story. Well, once again, huge congratulations to you, to Flavia, the rest of the team. There's many, many hip attack investigators. Um, and I, you know, exciting time to have it being presented at the ORS February 9th, and as well as having the simultaneous uh, expedited publication in The Lancet. So, yeah, and just one last thing, though. Yeah, please. Huge thanks to you, too. I mean, oh, I do want to yeah. highlight that this trial is true of all of our research in perioperative care. But this trial in particular, it really was crucial that there was leads both within the medicine and in the orthopedic community. Um, the trial wasn't doable without both groups playing major leadership, and we just thank you for all the leadership oh, you had in the trial. I, mean, I think I think real meaningful research always happens with collaboration, and I can't I can't think uh, when, I, when I look back, and I'll get you back in, again, but just to chat about 
the whole experience at McMaster in general around, because you and I have gone through, you know, a few decades of changes and the way the system has changed and how powerful, you know, luck brings people in the same institutions in some ways and you get a chance to collaborate. So for me, I'd like to share that story at some point with you and others. I think there's a lot of interest in that. But thank you very much. Uh, and thanks. Yes, all. Thanks. Thanks for watching Orthopod. Stay tuned for more episodes.